What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? Uh, hopefully really, really well. And let me just say, I'm excited to bring you every episode. But I'm really excited to bring you this episode. Why? Because we are once again talking about that subject that will get you shadow banned from Twitter and Instagram, allegedly. That's right. Ivermectin. Why? Because... dun da 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 there's a big new trial that's just been released, uh, probably about a month ago. Dun, da, da, da. You may have heard, it does nothing for COVID, just as we suspected. So this was one of those big uh, trials that we had teased in earlier episodes about ivermectin, saying, you know, wait for the data. Let's wait for a really good controlled trial with a big sample size, a placebo group, and let's see what happens. Now we know what happens. It doesn't work for COVID. Uh, not only does it not work, it looks like the trend in the effect of ivermectin on COVID was negative. So this just means that if you saw a positive trend, for example, but your data wasn't significant, you might say, oh, well, let's just increase the sample size and then we'll see an effect. Problems with that logic aside, this was actually the opposite. So it looked like if you increased the sample size and kept going, um, the people that took ivermectin would actually do worse. So it really doesn't seem to work. I think we can kind of put the nail in the coffin on this one. And to all those people that are touting all the ills of the pharmaceutical industry, uh, scandals, uh, greed, all of that stuff, we're not even going to go into the the logic of, well, just because that's true, there are scandals and they are greedy at times, we should get rid of them all or ivermectin works or they're, they're keeping it from us, all of that stuff. Talk about, you know, babies in bathwater and cutting off your nose to spite your face. Like it just, it doesn't make sense, but you still have to look at the data. Carefully controlled trials, double blind placebo trials, which we now have that say this drug does nothing for COVID. But you know what? We're not even going to talk about that. We're not going to talk about all the ways in which the pro-ivermectin COVID people are wrong. Because if you listened to this story since the beginning, you probably heard a lot of these podcasts, pundits, whatever, pro-ivermectin for COVID people tell you what an amazing wonder drug ivermectin is and how safe it is for humans and how it's been used in humans for years, uh, how there was a Nobel Prize that was won uh, because of the discovery of, of ivermectin. And you know what? That's all true. All of those things are true. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because all of those things are true. And yet the reputation of ivermectin has kind of been tarnished by these people that keep, you know, insisting that it works for COVID when it doesn't, and then the politicization and the media coverage and on and on and on. So let's actually sit down and talk about the true history of ivermectin. Where does it come from? How did we discover it? Did you know it was discovered on a golf course? There's a bacteria that produces the, the precursor to ivermectin, and it was found on a golf course in Japan fascinating. And this, the story of its discovery is actually a great story of serendipity, scientific discovery, how scientific discovery works, the scientific method, all of those things. So we are going to talk about that. We are going to talk about how it works on a molecular level. Why is it so good at killing all of these different types of parasites? Because yes, that is what it's, it's designed to work against is roundworm parasites. We are going to talk about resistance, 
What do we know about parasites developing resistance to this drug? There's actually a lot about ivermectin that we don't know, which again is an interesting uh, story about how science works. You can spend your whole life studying ivermectin and still not understand everything about it. Uh, it's also giving us interesting insights into how the nervous system works. You'll hear about that. We will talk about why ivermectin always comes up when it comes to drug repurposing for new diseases. So what is drug repurposing? How does that work? Why is ivermectin always on the list of, hey, there's a new disease. Let's throw some ivermectin at it and see if it works. And then we will talk about the sort of controversy, the media controversy, and what maybe we can do uh, as science communicators, as scientists, to you know avoid a situation like this in the future. And to help us through all of this is my guest, Dr. John Gilliard. John is a great veterinarian and a great research scientist, and I consider him uh, a great friend and a great mentor because John was one of the supervisors of my PhD thesis. So I worked in John's lab uh, for about five years. We became quite close. He's a great friend and a great guy to talk to and the perfect guy to talk to when it comes to ivermectin because his lab has studied ivermectin from the point of view of resistance. How are parasites developing resistance to ivermectin, which as you'll hear is a big problem. He studied this for decades. Uh, so he knows the ins and outs of ivermectin and it was a pleasure to have him on the show. But of course, before we get to that, as always, reach out to me, uh, reach out to the show on Twitter, Instagram, at 2BradForYou. Go to our website, 2BradForYou.wordpress.com. There you'll find the email address. You will find a voicemail box. You can leave a comment there. Uh, please do uh, rate, subscribe, leave comments wherever you're getting your podcast. That really helps out, boost us up in the charts, boost our visibility. So thank you to all those people who have done it. If you haven't done it, please subscribe, rate, review, all of those things. If you have done it, do it again. Why not? And with that, please enjoy my chat with Dr. John Gilliard about the true history of ivermectin. John, thanks so much for thanks so much for taking time out of your morning to do this for me. It's a pleasure. It's good to be here on on whatever platform we're on. Yeah, Squadcast. I don't get any money yeah. for saying it, but I'll I'll support. Oh, them anyway. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, well we work together, as people will know from the introduction. And you were one of the first people to actually ever come on my podcast way back, you know, probably three four years ago now. Yeah, so yeah. Things have changed. We've both grown a little older, a little wiser. I hope. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly older. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that. I remember that one well because it was in the house actually, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. You came over to the house and uh, yeah, you could hear the toilet flushing and things like that. Yeah, which added yeah. Atmosphere. <laughs> so we shouldn't have that problem now, but you know, my little one might be banging on the door at some point, so you may hear that. But other than that, we should be okay. We uh, we we went back and forth on what we could talk about on this. You know, we wanted to catch up. It's been a while since we've seen each other, but like, what do we make a podcast about? And Ivermectin came up, yeah, because wow. something you know well, and maybe uh, I'll start by telling you this story. But I got called a shill for Big Pharma on Twitter. Can you believe it? Really? <laughs> <laughs> because wow. I wrote basically a paper summary for some medical news website covering one of these, you know, trials that said ivermectin oh, right, yeah. didn't do anything. 
Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, uh, this wasn't like a piece of, you know, this isn't one of those works where I'm like, I've pitched the idea and I wanted to write about yeah, ivermectin. Yeah. It's like, no, someone paid me to just summarize this paper. So I didn't promote it on Twitter. I wasn't putting it up on my website or anything. So yeah. this guy from Alberta, naturally, oh, well, yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> found this somehow and found, then did the effort to find me just to shout at me on Twitter, say that I'm a piece of garbage and I should stay in Germany and it's a good thing that I left <laughs> Alberta. <laughs> sounds, sounds typical of the type, yeah. <laughs> so that actually got me started on going down the, the ivermectin. Does it work for COVID and everything like that? And we'll get yeah. to that. But what we can do here, because I have you, who's veterinarian, has worked with ivermectin, has studied it mm. in, in different you know projects in the lab and stuff, we can yeah. actually discuss the true history Yes. Of ivermectin. Yes. We can cut yes. through all of this, all of yes. this crap and get we down can. to the to the truth of the fact. So why don't you take it away with you can give us a little bit of your credentials, you know, like your bona fides in terms of understanding this stuff, uh, you know, so that the guys on Twitter yeah. don't uh, don't at you with a bunch of. <laughs> uh, I don't think that matters. I don't think that has any effect at all. But yeah, no, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it's one of the things we've studied. I mean, I, I study it more from a drug resistance point of view, right? So um, in, in animal parasites primarily. Um, so, so over the years, we, we're studying how parasites and particularly worm parasites become resistant to this drug, which we'll talk about more, obviously. Um, more from the parasite point of view and the genetics of the parasite and improving diagnostics and those kind of things, um, rather than the pharmaceutical end of it. So, so that's kind of what we doing the lab and, and my research program and we might touch on some of that in amongst it all but um yeah so that's if you like my credentials have kind of worked on it a lot and it's one <laughs> of those drugs which if you work in parasitology it's difficult to avoid really because it's so important mm -hmm. so then let's maybe like touch on that because like when it was discovered and i don't know the exact year maybe you you know that but um it was really like kind of one of these sort of wonder drugs in terms of yeah treating parasites almost like penicillin was absolutely it is it has been you know called a wonder drug and actually one of the things that is a bit of a shame about the current you know controversies and why it's in the news which we i'm sure we'll get to is is it's almost being kind of tarnished in a way in terms of the public perception of it right and so in terms of does it work does it not and all this kind of stuff but it is actually for parasitic diseases probably arguably the single most important tool that we've had uh, certainly one of two or three maybe um of controlling parasites both in animals and humans for you know the best part of 20 or 30 years so it's a hugely important drug and as you say it was you know and actually you know it had the um, I'm trying to remember the year. Oh my God, I've gone blank. Um, 2015, <laughs> new, 2015 uh, Nobel Prize for Medicine in Physiology was for the discovery of ivermectin. Right. right? So, so, so it's a big deal. Um, so it all stems back to kind of the 1970s, actually. And it, it is a really interesting story of drug discovery and serendipity and all those things. Um, so there was a guy called Satoshi Umura who is in Japan, and he was a, a, a kind of microbial chemist, I guess you'd describe him as. Um, and what his thing was, he would take bacteria from the natural environment and look for bioactive molecules which might have some medical value or, or agricultural value. Even. So, so he was particularly interested in a group of 
bacteria called Streptomyces, uh, which has a strong history actually of, of in drug discovery because there's a, probably the second broad spectrum antibiotic, I think, Streptomycin, which was actually, is actually a product of Streptomyces. So in, in sort of antimicrobials that had a history of, of yielding, uh, or that group of bacteria had a history of yielding uh, drugs. So he was, you know, basically looking at lots of natural isolates of Streptomyces and, and categorizing them and looking for bioactivity. Uh, and then he developed a collaboration um, with um, a scientist called Bill Campbell at the Merck drug company in the US, who's a parasitologist. And so he would screen these compounds or, or these, these organisms and the things they produced for activity against parasites. And so that's kind of the, the, the dynamic. And there's one set of, of, of these kind of streptomyces cultures. So what he would do, he'd grow them, look for some kind of bioactivity. And I could, to be honest, I can't remember the first screen what that would be. And then selected them from that and shipped them off to, to Merck, right? And so these, um, there's one set of 50 or something that were got sent to Merck. One of them was isolated from a, a Japanese golf course. So just literally go around in different places in the environment, you know, culturing bacteria, finding streptomyces and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so this one, which was from a golf course in Japan, uh, when Bill Campbell was screening for it, and he had this screen um, of a, a parasite with a terrible name, Heligomasoides polygyrus, which is a mouse parasite, so it's a mouse model. And they would just, you look at the activity of these culture supernatants, essentially, when given to mice, uh, how they killed the parasite. This one worked incredibly well. I think the first test they did also killed the mouse as well, but that, that was, <laughs> I think there was something else in the culture. Um, but anyway, it, it, it basically, um, that's where it started. And then Bill Campbell and his group then isolated and identified the, the compounds, which were these avomectins. And so there was a, a mixture, I think, of four different avomectin compounds, which are these things called macrocyclic lactones and it's it's, it's it's quite a big organic molecule in the sense of for a pharmaceutical um so I, I can't remember how many it's got like 18 of these carbon rings um and so it's quite complex so you can't really synthesize it so the way it's produced is is still by from the bacteria right, right which culture and then then they modify it chemically afterwards and really? so ivermectin yeah ivermectin still the Avamectin still the is, is a chemical derivative of avamectin, which is the natural product, and and there's a chemical modification which I cannot remember exactly what that is off the top of my head, but it's like a just like one hydroxyl group or something, and basically that is ivermectin, and that's what we use. Um, so so that was the, the, the if you like the the basic discovery, and so what. That, the origin story. Yeah, and then what they did. I mean, I don't. I don't. Just interrupt me if you want. To set me off in a different direction. But well, no. I actually, I will. I will interrupt you here because I think I just just to like sort of clarify this because I think it's an interesting point. Is that you take these bacteria and they have these natural like they've evolved these chemicals to or you know molecules to fight off different things and then you just say and this is yeah. actually how like a yeah. lot of drug discovery done i think this is you know an important point for the for the audience yeah. and stuff is that like this is where a lot of our absolutely you know, penicillin was the same story right but it came yeah, from a exactly, yeah. a mold or a fungus or something so you have all these so i'm surprised to hear that like they haven't now figured out a way to make it synthetically in the lab and you still to get ivermectin you still have to grow a bunch of bacteria 
and get this stuff out. Yeah, it's a complex molecule, right? And I think I think the, other, the I mean, and actually, subsequent work they did was interesting as well because they did a combination of chemical modifications and also mutagenesis experiments on the bacteria. Basically, you screen for mutants of the bacteria, which produce slightly different versions of, of the... Mm -hmm. uh, so they've mapped the whole biosynthetic pathway and the certain mutations uh, which change those enzymes in that pathway, which will give a slightly different product. So there's things like doramectin, selamectin, uh, and a whole number of others, which all have slightly different pharmacological properties in terms of potency, um, uh, toxicity issues, and things like this. So, so there's now a whole family of these things and some of it's done by chemistry on the original kind of um, avermectin molecule, and some of it's done by mutagenizing the organism. So it's kind of fascinating that side of it. So, so you know, you know, it's, there's a lot of science subsequent to the the you know original discovery of the the mm -hmm. original compound. So, so that yeah, so it is fascinating. And then the other the other kind of sidebar, which I, where the serendipity comes in, is. You know, they've tried to re-isolate this organism from the envir environment over the years. I should say this was done back in the 70s, right? So so mm -hmm. since then, and they've never re-isolated that, that strain of streptomyces. It's called streptomyces avermectinus, and they've never actually... Uh, so they've never found it again? Yeah, correct. Yeah, they've never re-isolated. They have isolated another one, which produces a slightly different family called milbomycins. And so, so, so that's been isolated, which is a different streptomyces. But that original species, of strept is, as far as I'm aware, you know, and again, I'm going off what I've read, and, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's true. They've never re-isolated the, the um, wow. original. So, so the, yeah. he got it from that, he got it from that, that one golf course, yeah. that one time. Yeah. And we got yeah. this wonder drug from I, it, yeah. and that like yeah. that lineage has been in the the lab for you know. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and, and so yeah, it just shows you how luck plays a role in these things, big time, right? And, oh. and how many things are out there to be discovered, which just by luck right. we haven't discovered, right? And there's and and actually, you're know, going to your point about these natural products as as drugs. They, you know, that was big in the seventies, eighties, maybe the nineties, and then there was a big trend away from it in pharma where, you know, chemical synthesis and these big combinatorial libraries that they produce with small molecules and they do it all chemically. Uh, so it's synthetic chemicals, which is screen. And that became the kind of, and still is to some degree, the, the, the you know, way it's done. But now there's a bit of a resurgence or quite a bit of a resurgence of these natural compound screens again. So there's, there's almost two ways you can discover drugs, if you like, from the chemical point of view is you synthesize things and there's lots of, you know, high throughput ways of producing lots of chemical variants to do that. But but then there's this screen of natural products and that, that be, you know, things go through fashions, right? So, so it, the natural looking for things from the environment fell out of fashion, but it's come back again. So Well, I imagine that there's a, a cost motivation in there too. Like, yeah. I don't know, like, I don't know what's cheaper, you know, like sending people out on these missions yes. to get these dirt samples that may or may not do anything or, you know, all the lab equipment that it takes to synthesize all these chemicals. I mean, yeah, I think the reason the chemical synthesis became so popular is because it's scalable, right? Um, so right. If you, whereas actually sending people out to find you know, natural products and screen them, is a, it's less scalable. Right? So it's difficult to right. automate. It's difficult. So I think I think you know the, the the feeling was in the drug industry that this this scalability of synth synthesis 
um, and all the wonders of chemistry would be the answer to drug discovery. And to some degree, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a great thing, but I think they've realised that actually, it's like all things, it's not quite that simple. It doesn't always produce what you're after. And therefore, going back to the natural things is, is a part of the mix now again. So, yeah. Well, and like, I think there was probably, you know, an enthusiasm as some of the chemical technology took off. You know, you see this a lot. Once there's a technological advance, it's like, oh, this is how we're yes, doing it now yeah. because this is, you know, the wonderful new toy and it's going to yeah. bring all this great mm -hmm. stuff and blah, blah, blah. And then you realize, well, it's not as good as it, as uh, it was and yeah. let's go back to, yeah. back to basics. But so maybe for the people that want to yell at me on Twitter about for the evils of pharma com companies and stuff, you know, these things are natural products. Yeah. So it yeah. uh, it fits into the whole, uh, you know, back to nature. I only yeah. use, I only put natural well, things yeah. in my body no, kind of absolutely. thing. So there you go. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> well, it's a whole other topic, isn't it? The, the assumption <laughs> that natural things are good and, and, you know, chemical things are bad kind of, or synthetic things are bad. You know, there's plenty of natural yeah. toxins in the environment as well, right? So, this, you know, so, yeah. so yeah, it's an interesting view. Uh, but you're right. Some of these, these drugs and farmers, are, are, and this is a good example of one, is actually produced essentially out there in nature yeah and i know with uh you know we mentioned resistance whether it's to the parasites or uh bacteria the, the I, I think that's also one of the reasons that people are going back to nature for these things is because resistance evolves so quickly yeah. to the things that we have so yeah. you know we gotta we gotta find new 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 things we're running out of ideas and who's a better creator at you know the yeah. the, the arms race between different species and the immune yeah. system and stuff than evolution right absolutely so yeah and, and it's, it's what i mean a complex molecule like ivermectin it, it, it's you know nature produces incredibly complex chemistry right and, and so which mm -hmm. is difficult to recreate so so even with all the, the chemical knowledge we have, so it's um, mm -hmm. yeah, no, it's, it's it's pretty amazing, really. So then they now have ivermectin. You could produce it in the lab and stuff, yeah. but it was it was screened in a mouse model first. Yeah. So I imagine its first use was for animals. Absolutely, yeah, and that's and yeah. So the, I guess the next part of the story was what they did at Merck and Bill Campbell and colleagues, basically they, I mean, they basically screened as many parasites as they could because once they realized they had this thing, it's like, well, what will it work against? And so the next part of the story in terms of the wonder drug side of it is the spectrum of activity was remarkable. So they screened against a number of different gastrointestinal worm parasites and it had activity against various ones of those, not all of them, but 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 a lot. And then filarial nematodes, which are roundworms, which are, are living tissues, which is a completely di and they're very phylogenetically distant from some of the roundworms that we get in the gut, uh, and they're transmitted by arthropods, and, and discovered they worked against those. And and the first ones they were checking on those again were animal parasites. There's something called heartworm in dogs which is transmitted by mosquitoes, which is a big deal in, in Europe and, and in North America in terms of pet animals. So there's a big potential market there, right? So, so and it had activity there. Uh, and then they screened it against arthropod ectoparasites. So things like everything from fleas to lice to mites. And, and it has broad spectrum activity against those. So, so now you've got this drug, which 
you know, started off with one worm in a mouse is, is it would be exaggerating to say every parasite, but a significant proportion of parasites of all different <laughs> types, right? So, so, so as you say, then it was, it was launched as an animal health product. And, and, and again, there's, um, it's all to do with money, right? So, so if, if you think it will come onto the human side in a little while, but, the, you know, there's not much of a market on the human side in terms of commercially as well. We'll, we'll discuss, but on the animal health side, you know, it's, it's a big issue. So if you look at cattle and sheep and, and horses, every animal you look at in a field is, is full of gastrointestinal roundworm parasites, and they can have effects on production and health. And so it's money, and it's a, it's and controlling those actually pre-ivermectin and a couple of other drugs around the same time in the 80s was 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 very very difficult. And this product was launched primarily for livestock parasite control. And, and actually, it was the biggest within a few years of its launch, which was in the mid-80s or early 80s. It was, um, it was the biggest single-selling animal health product of the animal health farmer bar none, right? So it was massive. And, and then it was yeah. repurposed for companion animals, for things like heartworm and gastrointestinal parasites and dogs and cats and and it's just this huge veterinary drug and, and market. So, so that's where it started. Right. So then, let me ask this because it's you say like it works on all of these different parasites that are, as you mentioned, distantly related. So, what is it like? How does how does ivermectin actually work to kill or slow down the parasite? That's obviously it's something that's conserved in in across all of these. Yeah, well, that's species. the interesting thing because it isn't. It isn't kind of thing. So, so I think you know, basically, the drug acts directly on a number of different ion channels, right? So, so it's a it's a neurotoxin, if you like, for the parasite. But it acts on quite a number of different classes of these ion channels. And ion channels, just for people to, is they they pump things in and out of the cell. Yeah. So, so if you think of yeah. neurotransmission. And you think of it, one nerve attaching to another and sending a signal between nerve cells or uh, attaching to a muscle and causing a muscle to contract by, by mm -hmm. a neurological signal happens at a synapse. And, and so the synapse is the end point of, a, of a, a nerve traveling down a nerve fiber. It triggers release of chemicals in the, in the, the synapse, which is a nerve ending, if you like, which then mm -hmm. diffuses and then these chemicals bind to these ion channels on the next nerve and open them up and, to pass and, the, and the pass signal, signal along, yeah. if you want to put it that way, uh, or at a muscle neuromuscular junction. So, so these drug or ivermectin binds to these ion channels on the postsynaptic nerve membrane. And mm -hmm. so what so it does, the well, it actually opens channel the channel. It actually opens the channel. Ah. And so therefore that kind of causes hyperpolarization of the postsynaptic membrane. And depending if that's, and then, the, then it gets into the details of what that neuron does, right? Because if it's a neuron, which is an inhibitory neuron, it, it can cause, you know, one effect where if it's an excitatory neuron, it causes another effect. If it's doing right. muscle in this part of the worm, it's going to have a different effect. So, so actually the effect on the worm can be quite complex depending on what, a neurological target in terms of the cell it's acting on. But essentially, hmm. it acts on these different ion channels. And and there's lots of them. I mean, there's dozens of different types of ion channels that we all have and all you know organisms with a nervous system have. And so it, it basically uh, acts on different ion channels at 
different potencies. So at low dose concentrations, it acts on things called glutamate-gated uh, chloride channels, which are specific to invertebrates. So we don't have them. So, so that's mm. why on those particular. That's why there's a safety. Yeah. So, so it doesn't. But if you increase the dose, it starts to act on other ion channels, such as things like GABA ion channels, which is gamma butyric acid, which is one of these chemical signals, which we do have in our central nervous system. So, if you up the dose far and further and further and right. further, so both on the parasite it starts to have different effects at higher doses, and then on on the host be it animal or human, if you go high enough, it will start to have some kind of effect on, on our nervous systems, right? Uh, but that's right. way beyond the, the therapeutic, you know, doses which are licensed, of course. But so it so basically it acts on these these ion channels, primarily at the doses that are used therapeutically, these ones which are specific to invertebrates, which gives you, as you said, the, the, the safety of the therapeutic difference between the host and the parasite mm -hmm. and then but it gets <laughs> you, you can edit this out or, or stop me as we go but but it, it <laughs> but it gets more complex again and there's a there's different fascinating parts to it so if you take the, the gastrointestinal worms it mainly acts on on these neurons which innovate uh, an organ if you like the worm's throat its pharynx which so it paralyzes okay. the feeding organ of the worm right so the worm can't feed at higher doses, it will paralyze effect on the nerves, which affect or innovate the body wall muscle of the worm. So it causes a, a paralysis of the worm. So 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 it does two things to the worms, and depending on the species of the worm and the dose, it, it, which of those. But generally speaking, it's the feeding effect we think is the most important effect, and that's on the gastrointestinal worms. The interesting story um, on the filarial parasites, which are these tissue-dwelling parasites, is it acts on ion channels in the same way, but, in a, but its effect on the worm is completely different. So, the way, so these tissue-dwelling par parasites, there's a number of different species, we can kind of talk more about them if, if we get to it, but, but basically what they discovered was if you take the stages, the, the progeny of these parasites, these baby worms, if you like, the, the, the larvae, the drug acts very effectively in vivo on them. So if you treat a person with ivermectin, it will clear these, these larvae from the person. Works really powerfully. Right. If you put those larvae in a, in, a, in a test tube and throw ivermectin on it in a lab, it does nothing to them. So, so they're perfectly huh. happy swimming around it. So this started kind of investigation. It turns out to, to cut a long story short, is you know the current hypothesis, and there's, there's good evidence for it now, that ivermectin actually affects nerves which affect the release of um, molecules which the worm secretes into the host. So, so worms when the host pump stuff out, right? It stops right. those things being pumped out by the worm. And what those things that are pumped out do is they damp down the immune system. You can think about it, the drug is decloaking the parasite to the immune system. And then the body can just take care yeah. of it. Yeah, exactly. So, so without a, a good immune system, the drug doesn't work. So, the, so, so on the gastrointestinal parasites, it's paralyzing them, stopping them feeding. On the tissue-dwelling parasites, it's actually stopping them doing things to evade the immune system. And so, although it's working on ion channels, right, affecting yeah. the, the nerve system of the worm, but depending on what those nerves are doing and what their functions are, it has different implications for the parasite. So as you go deeper and deeper into it, it gets more and more complex, right? But it's fascinating. It's, it's, it's I mean, this is like a, a good example of, you know, the complexity of life, but also the simplicity of it, yeah. you know, because we have these ion channels that 
you know, basic thing that's found in all these different forms of life, but they do so many different things. Yeah. Like they're, they're in charge of all of these different things. And then you have this molecule that, you know, can combine to this one, not this one, this one, not yeah. this one. And it just creates this like, it's, it's really kind of mind boggling. And it kind of makes you think how, you know, you said serendipity, right? Like in terms yeah. of, of governing this thing, but it, it kind of makes it feel like so random. Like, do we even really know what we're doing? We find this <laughs> exactly. molecule and, <laughs> and we know it works. And then now we got to try and figure out how it works. Yeah. And once we start looking at how it's actually doing what we're witnessing it doing, yeah. it's like a whole nother mystery yeah. and just yeah. un unraveling yeah. of this thing. It makes you realize like, well, we'll, we'll never really know no, everything. I mean, like no, it's, exactly. it's a daunting. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think, I mean, you know, we understand a lot about it now, but there's a lot more to understand. And you can go back again, philosophers about research and things, right, is – People, I think, who are not in science wonder, well, how can you keep researching? Like, if you say you work on a drug like ivermectin, and we work on other things as well, but, you know, you could have a whole career just working on that, and you would never run out of things to discover about it because it's complex, right? And and, and mm -hmm. actually useful mm -hmm. things come out of that research, understanding things at a deeper level, right? Because, you know, so I think, I think yeah. Well, the biology of ion channels, yeah, right? Exactly, and like yeah. And, and actually, stuff, yeah, yeah, and, and, and things like ivermectin and many other things which act on iron channels are actually used in fundamental research as an experimental tool, right? So has a hold of the life in another way in neurobiology, right? And things like that. So so it's, you know, yeah, it's endless. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's really I mean I, I I knew it was the wonder drug and I know at one point you had absorbed this knowledge by being in your lab that <laughs> it worked on ion channels. But I'd I I must say, I even yeah, I didn't realize it went that deep. It's incredible. In in terms of resistance, then, do you see resistance evolving in all of the species that ivermectin works against, sort of at the same rate, or are some more resist becoming more resistant than others? And what do we know about you know the mechanism of resistance? Because it's always this back and forth, right? Like the the yeah. evolutionary arms race. Yeah, and actually, not too. To worry you, but we, we, we understand less about the resistance than we do about the mode of actions, actually. <laughs> to start the part, I mean, it's a good question because, you know, the, the short answer is it varies a lot between parasites mm -hmm. in ways that partially we understand and some ways we don't understand. You know, in terms of the gastrointestinal parasites, that's where we see at the moment the biggest resistance problems in, in animals. So where mm -hmm. this drug is being used, so there's a whole variety of parasites that, that in livestock, for example, live in the gastrointestinal tract and cause these problems I've talked about. Um, and ivermectin started to be used very heavily, shall we put it that way. And, and actually on the veterinary side, in most countries, although it's changed actually in relative recent years in Europe, as always, Europe's often ahead of North America in these matters, but um, uh, it, it, it actually is prescription only in, in some countries now. But for mm. many years in many parts of the world, and still is, you can just buy it off the shelf, right? If you're a farmer, you can buy this stuff from a merchant, right? So uh, um, And give your animals as much yeah, as you want. Exactly, whenever, you, whenever want. you want it, right? So, so I think that's, and as people quite naturally, because it is this wonder drug, you know, where parasites were the bane of many livestock owners' life in terms of disease and production, it became this this tool that 
all these problems seemingly went away. So people would use it, like, you know, it, was, it became cheap. Once it went off mm -hmm. patent, it became very cheap and you get lots of generic versions of it, which essentially work. Uh, in some parts of the world, may not be as good as it should be, but, you know, um, some of the generics are absolutely fine. So people use them and, um, yeah, it was heavily used. And so we've got resistance. And if you look in some parts of the world, with some parasites, it basically doesn't work right anymore uh, hmm. yeah and so so things like homonchus which is a blood feeding parasite that i work on and sheep and all the cattle parasites it's it's essentially useless in some regions right you go as far as that wow and it's just because we've selected for resistance and then you know if you look at the tissue dwelling parasites resistance is a lot less common but Mm -hmm. The dog hollow I talked about, it's been used, and it's again, it's complicated how it's used actually, because it's used as a monthly in dogs with heartworm. The problem is, I have to describe the whole life cycle to explain it properly. And yeah. we don't have time <laughs> That's for right, that. we got a bit of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this could take days. But, but, you know, but, but basically, it's transmitted by mosquitoes and, and the, the, the microscopic larvae. The mosquito bites the dog, it migrates through tissues, ends up in the heart and grows to a big worm in the dog's heart, right? So so the way it's prevented is by giving ivermectin monthly, and that blocks the infection by these mosquitoes, these larvae come from the mosquitoes. It doesn't act right. against... So it's like a prophylactic. Yeah, it doesn't act against the adult worm, it just blocks these things coming in. So you have to give it regularly. Mm -hmm. And so that's been done for many years. Resistance didn't seem to be developing, but about seven or eight years ago, it's now been confirmed. And we don't know how widespread it is, but there's definite cases of resistance in these filarial parasites now. So it's coming there where for many years, uh, it doesn't seem to be a problem. So, so yeah, so on that group, it, it's, it's slower to develop and we don't know why. Well, some of it is to do with the genetics of the parasites and how variable they are and how there is, you know, because you need genetic variation to respond to drug selection. Right. And so things like that. But there's lots of complexes about the biology which might affect the rate at which resistance develops, which is probably a whole other podcast, actually, to go into the details of that. But, so for the purposes of the, the COVID controversy, which we had talked about and stuff, yeah. Uh, just at the beginning, it is used in humans. So it's not like we yes. had this discovery. We now know this yeah. stuff. We know how it works in, in worms, in animals. So then the, the idea is naturally, well, let's look at, can we get a dose that works yeah. safely in humans uh, for human parasites? And the human parasites and the animal parasites, again, are related. Yeah. The gastrointestinal worms that you find in, in animals are similar to the ones you find in humans, the yeah. filarial ones, same thing. So it was a natural sort of leap to be like, well, we could use this in humans. But you said the, the commercial incentive isn't really there because a lot yeah. of these um, parasites are problems in poorer countries yeah. that can't really afford to buy the, the drug, yeah. which I think I've talked about on the podcast before. So maybe we don't need to go so much into that. Yeah. Needless to say that it is, there is a precedent of using it in humans. So it's not like when, yeah. you know, COVID came along and, and yeah. people said that it might work, that it was totally out of left field. Do you know of any like other like off-label uses of ivermectin for other than parasite disease? Yeah, I, 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 I think it's mainly... I should have looked this up. That's no, my bad. Well, no, no. I mean, it's mainly parasite control of different types, right? So it's got a right. huge number of different applications, as we said, on the animal health side, and quite a number of different applications for human parasites, as you said, because it's repurposed uh, mainly by the, you know, kind of philanthropy of... The pharmaceutical industry, and we've talked about that before, as you say, um, which is 
basically led to it being used for a whole variety of different parasites. It's been explored for repurposing for other things, everything from cancer research to as an antiviral, and has been explored for those things. But I'm not aware of it clinically being used for them um, okay. outside of that. There is one, actually, which I'm trying to desperately remember it, that it does, it was, I don't think it's like heavily used, but it has been clinically used a number of years ago for some neurological conditions in humans. And I think it was some, there's some kind of paresis syndrome that has been used you know, mm-hmm. on a on a clinical trial basis, and actually being used as a as a therapeutic, but it's not like widely used for anything like that. So I'm not I might be missing it myself, but I, I'm not aware of it being repurposed for a completely different purpose yet. Although right. it's always on the list of when people talk about drug repurposing, because you know repurposing of drugs is a big thing these days. Uh, we should maybe mm-hmm. explain that very briefly because yeah, you know, drug discovery is extremely expensive to go from what we're talking about with the ivermectin story to a product takes many, many years and uh, takes billions of dollars of investment. And that's one of the problems the pharmaceutical company has. And when people bash big pharma, you know, some of the profit drive is to produce new products, right? So it's not all greed. <laughs> some yeah. of it obviously is in shareholder companies, but, but nevertheless, it does take a lot of investment. And a lot of that is a regulatory side, the the back end of it, where you're doing safety clinical trials and, you know, Mm -hmm. the different phases of clinical trials, one, two, and three, it's hugely expensive. So if you can take a drug which has already got an application in one area and find it does something else, it's way cheaper and faster to then just do whatever trials you need for that one thing because all the safety stuff's probably done and all that kind of stuff. Right, uh, all the basic yeah, fundamental yeah, stuff exactly. is already there. Yeah. So, so yeah. there's a big interest in forming repurposing. So, you know, all these drugs which are out there and or things that didn't quite make it um, are being screened all the time for other other activities. So, so the ivermectin story with COVID is is a typical story in some ways. It just didn't hit, hit the media, right? Is is it's just constant. People are screening known drugs mm-hmm. or compounds which have some activity but didn't quite make it for new applications all the time. And ivermectin is a common one which because it has it has some antibacterial activity but has never really been taken to the next stage with that. So it has activities against all sorts of things. Um, so one day it probably will, but but it's, 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 it's complexity of use. I mean, on the human side, you know, just going through the parasites again, it, it, there's... There's these filarial tissue-dwelling nematodes, which things like cause alphatiasis. There's, there's the, the river blindness, which is a filarial um, nematode mm-hmm. in Africa, which is transmitted by black flies. Scabies, which is a mite infection, is becoming the treatment of choice for that. Strongloides, which is another gastrointestinal nematode, which can be a very severe disease, and 70 million people it's used for that. It's, it's been trialed as a combination therapy with other gastrointestinal nematode called Trichuris. Uh, so, you know, the, the list on the parasite side of new application, new application goes on and on and on. And that's all on the human side. There is one interesting thing, which is a bit different, and that's in mosquito control and malarial control. Hmm. World Health Organization, which have a, now a roadmap to try and uh, develop ivermectin as a malarial, part of the malarial control toolkit. And the way that works is it... People who are treated with ivermectin, if a mosquito bites them at that point, it, you know, it's a, because it has 
activity against all these invertebrates, it kills a mosquito, it feeds, right? So, so there's, there's regimes that have been trialed where if you treat people several times during the high transmission season, at a population level, it will really reduce mosquito populations and transmission. And if you also, mosquitoes also have a reservoir on livestock, they feed on livestock as well. So if you treat livestock in a, in a controlled fashion as part of a program, the idea is you can reduce mosquito populations. Not You wouldn't use that alone, but it's part of a toolkit. And so um, mm-hmm. that's been proposed. And, and it also actually does seem to have some effect on the liver stages of plasmodium, which is the malarial parasite. Uh, uh, and that's not well defined as to how effective that will be clinically, but that's another part of the, that picture. It might also have some direct anti-malarial activity. So that's that's kind of an emerging new application. Mm-hmm. So although it's acting on, a, on an arthropod, it's really about controlling malaria, right? But, so this is like... So then it... I guess my point is that it, like you mentioned, ivermectin's always on this list when a new disease pops yeah, up or a new yeah. thing, you know, especially an infectious disease, especially a parasitic disease. Um, it's always good. People are always going to try it because it is this wonder drug. Yeah. It's worked on yeah. so many things. It's like, why not just throw exactly. some ivermectin at it and see what happens? So it wasn't unheard of, we'll say, to to try it, yeah. right? But then, yeah. and this is a point I think point is worth you know, beginning this whole uh, section on, you know, the COVID controversy, yeah. because you see, you mentioned that you're seeing, you can see activity on some things. So you yeah. can see activity of ivermectin on bacteria or the liver stages of, of malaria, but activity, like when you say activity, we're talking, I'm assuming, in a Petri dish or yeah. in a lab or something like that. So that's where the ivermectin in for COVID kind of falls apart, because at the beginning, the the initial evidence was just that, which I guess is maybe you can, in, yeah. you know, enlighten us a little bit. But you start by just saying, okay, let's put a little ivermectin on the on the organism in it, in, you know, outside of the body or you know, in some kind of controlled lab environment to see does it do something? Is this worth pursuing? Right? Yeah. No, absolutely. That's where it started. You know, with that drug repurposing thing we've just been talking about you know, when the pandemic was called everybody was interested in working on COVID-19 as uh, both you know preventatives vaccines drugs and so the repurposing machinery of various labs went into effect right and so one of the things that was in that list was ivermectin so the the first kind of hit the headlines was there's one just and you know one paper which was not in a particularly prominent journal showed that ivermectin had activity in vitro as you're describing it in a test tube essentially uh, against um, and reduced viral replication in, in tissue culture cells uh, in a test tube now the drug concentrations that were in that test tube were something like a hundredfold higher than you would ever safely give to a human, right, in terms of what's in the bloodstream. So that's the first point, right? So even taking away a test tube is not a human, mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a virus in a culture disinfecting a cell is not, you know, the natural pathogenesis and infection of a person. Uh, even the drug concentration it took, you know, if you, if, you, if you use drug concentrations that you see in the body, 
uh, in the bloodstream in a normal therapeutic level, it would have no effect on viral application. But it's you go up and up and up, and then it starts to have this effect, right? Yeah. So, and it's an interesting observation, and it's a totally legitimate experiment. And some of those things may lead to something, right? It's where it starts. Mm-hmm. But then, obviously, what happened then after that was a number of very small clinical trials were done, which, you know, were underpowered and not well controlled, most of them. And and actually, one of them was shown subsequently to be actually fraudulent, which was one of the big ones which hit the Mm -hmm. press and was subsequently retracted, uh, suggesting, some of them suggesting there was an effect both in, um, as a therapeutic and some of them uh, as a preventative, and some of them not. But the ones that showed an effect were, were small trials, not well controlled. And so, the, and that's fairly typical early on in these things. People try stuff and that's a, but the big trials had not been done to show, was there anything in this at all? And so the press got a hold at that point. And then, it, and then you know, the story everybody knows is, is then the, the, the politicians got hold of it the media got hold of it and then people started taking it right on based on no evidence mm-hmm. of, of clinical effect and i think just before mm-hmm. we we're talking uh, before we started the podcast you mentioned this trial in brazil which has just come out which is the biggest trial so far looking at as a therapeutic where they gave i think it was three thousand people in the trial they, they treated for three days symptomatic people in a, in a, and this was a proper double-blind controlled trial um, mm-hmm. with the placebo group, and the, and there was no difference in a three-day treatment of the subsequent course of the disease in the treatment group and the control group, and so so that's the biggest one yet, which shows no difference, and so so doesn't the, work. Yeah, so so I mean. It's always very proven negative, right? You could always argue, well, if you did slightly differently, it might have an effect. But the point is, there is no com- compelling evidence that has any clinical effect in a person at all yet. And, and so, you know, um, that's where we are with it. And there are a couple of other big trials going on, which are not published yet. But, uh, you know, what you hear of them is, you know, it's probably going to say the same thing. But Well, I think it's important to, like... So I wanted to go back to that thing. It's like it shows activity and then you bring it to the next thing, you bring it to the next thing to kind of show the chain, right? Like the the, the steps involved as to how you would get from test tube to, okay, this works. And really, like as you explained, in an emergency with all the COVID-19, everyone rushing to do it, you know, you, you of course are going to get these small... I get, you don't want to call it anecdotal, but it's like, it's not a, it's not a true clinical trial, not a placebo trial. It's a doctor who's like, I've got all these patients. I want to help them. I'm going to try ivermectin and see if it works. And then he kind of says, well, it worked in these ones and maybe it worked in these ones or whatever. So you get this sort of signal, you know, where one guy, and I I mean, this is a whole nother, again, a whole nother podcast is the psychology of some of these doctors that are like staking their media reputations and stuff on ivermectin works, ivermectin works without having that clinical trial evidence. It's like, you're really sticking your neck out here because people will do the clinical trials. Yeah. Yeah. And we will find the answer, you know, and now we're finding that the answer is, is, is no. I think yeah. one of the quotes from um, one of the news pieces I saw about this latest trial was one of the doctors just saying, like, at some point, we're going to have to stop trialing this because it's a yes. waste of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. absolutely. It's not yeah. working. <laughs> yeah. And it's exactly it, right? And, and then the media drives, the, like I say, proving a negative is difficult. So, so the whole 
hoopla actually drives the requirement to do research to disprove something which there's no evidence that it's real right so so how yeah, far yeah, do you yeah. keep trying to disprove something which everything says it's not real but we need to keep trying disproving it right so and then yeah. for every every one of these big trials will be a little one comes out suddenly will pop up and say oh look this is an effect and so it all kicks off again so it, it is but i think the the it's forgivable in people who, who are not medically trained or not you know necessarily scientifically trained but when you see certain members of the medical profession taking the approach of just that's the bit that is is mind-blowing right mm -hmm. because you mm -hmm. know there's all this 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 concept of regression to the mean I don't, it's a term that's used i don't know if you heard about but basically if you're ill nine 90 better things 90 percent of the time you're going to get better at some point right and yeah. so if if you you take a medication a good proportion of people you're going to get better right yeah. And, and the, the human bias of I took that tablet and now I feel better, it must be doing something, is very strong. And so right. you often hear people say, yeah, well, listen to the people who've tried this, right? Listen, you know, speak to them. It's all very well, these scientists saying this. Speak to the people. I know this person who it worked for. But, but you know, you could have taken a sugar pill and it would have worked perfectly the same because you were going to get better anyway. And so the whole point right. of a proper clinical trial is to tease those things out. You would think most medically trained people would understand that, but but it is surprising. Actually, a proportion of the medical profession, the veterinary professions, are same, still kind of take anecdotal experience of their own and weight it very heavily. And we're all we're all tricked by. Yeah, this is like a you know human psychology, right? Like this is a a problem with human psychology, and I mean it's it, this is the placebo effect. Too. Yeah, absolutely, exactly, exactly. Like it, yeah. which we've all heard of. I think yeah. everyone, you know, knows the knows the placebo effect at this point. So it's like this is exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, it's this bias, this this you know, I saw it, so it had to be true, or you know, I yeah. felt it, or whatever. Or I'm a doctor, and I witnessed all these people get better and stuff. But yeah. like you said, it's like you know, even COVID, not to minimize, it's very serious problems. Very, you know, lots of people have lost their lives, but most people that get it survive. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. this was the problem with those trials. Like you said, there weren't there weren't proper controls and stuff. So it's like you're throwing the kitchen sink at these people. Yeah. You know, a lot of them were getting like dexamethasone and, exactly. and ivermectin and everything all at once. So it's like you can't say, well, it was the ivermectin or it was this or it was the fact that yeah. we kept their room at a certain temperature or yeah. we, you know, like it could be any of these things. right? Yeah. Or they were just bound to get better anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, and, so. and, yeah, exactly. And I think all those things confound, and that's where we have clinical trials. And actually, that Brazilian one, there was no statistical significant difference between the two groups, the placebo and the treatment group. But mm -hmm. the outcome, the trend, was to be worse than the ivermectin group, right? So so it wasn't even the fact. You, you can argue with some of these trials that if you look at the trend, well, if, if we did a bigger trial, we might then get statistical power to show there's an effect. So suppose the, the treatment group is just slightly better, but you do the stats and it's not significant. Well, the, you, you can do a bigger and bigger, bigger trial and maybe it'll become, so, at which point you argue whether it's so, so marginal, who cares anyway, right? But right. in that Brazilian trial, it was even the other way around, right? The, the, the treatment group <laughs> is slightly worse. So, <laughs> so I think we can really say that we can essentially put the nail in the coffin here for for ivermectin and COVID. I don't, I don't see the no, ship turning no, around. No, no, no. But people are still taking it, and uh, and I think you know the other argument people say, well, you know, what's the harm? But I think the harm is 
although it's a, a drug which is, as we've said, widely used in the developing world, incredibly powerful drug, you know, people have taken the, the horse and the cattle versions because they can get hold of them. And the dose yeah. of those things are, you know, people are dosing at doses which are, are not, not safe. <laughs> not safe. And so, so but even even, even the, the, the human drug will occasionally have side effects and, and, and adverse effects. It's rare, but it happens. And then also people have taken them as a regime that it was never designed for because when you use it against parasites, it's either a, a single dose or a two or three day course Whereas people taking them for months on end, which is an entirely different. So it's never been tested for these kind of things in terms of safety. So we know if it's used properly, like it's supposed to be used for the organisms, it's supposed to be used in the regimes that have been tested. It's a very safe drug. If you start taking it dosage all over the place and periods of time it's not supposed to be taken for, we don't know what those effects are, right? So so I think it's a it's an amazing thing that people would take that risk personally, right? It's incredible. But I mean, I I don't know, we can start wrapping it up here because I know you gotta you gotta get on with your with your actual important research My, instead of just being on the podcast here. <laughs> I but, enjoy uh, this. It's good. <laughs> yeah. But uh I mean I think this speaks to the and like you said, you can't fault people who you know, everyone's scared. It's COVID. Yeah. It's a pandemic. People are scared. There's this bias against pharmaceutical companies for whatever reason, which again, yeah. seems kind of silly. You know, people be like, well, they're keeping this from us. But it's like, none of that really makes sense in your conspiracy world, because the, the pharmaceutical companies still make money. You know, like if you yeah. would think that they would want to yeah. be selling it to you and be like, hey, this works for COVID. Yeah. Like, it, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Merck have, have come out and Merck themselves have said, you know, this this has no effect for for COVID. Yeah. Do not take it, right? So, so the you know, it's ironic, isn't it, that the farmer gets accused of these things, but they're actually on the opposite side of this fence, right? right? So, so and it doesn't stop people taking it. So, the same people who are probably saying, "I'm not going to take the vaccine," yeah, uh, which has been massively trialed to be safe and effective and all the rest. Of it. I'm not going to take that because I don't trust pharma. They're just trying to sell us a product, but they're taking a product which all the Suggestions is it well not suggestions the proof saying to proof says it doesn't do anything, um, and the farmer comes saying we don't want to sell it you. <laughs> it's like but they're still taking it. Yeah. So it's just it's crazy, right? And and but uh, you know I yeah it's it's hard, but it makes you realise how difficult it is to get scientific messages across. I mean that's your what you do for for a living, right? And you you're you're the expert on that, but but it's just a really good example of it in terms of mm-hmm. of yeah you can try pretty hard and the message doesn't get through right so then this is i wonder like i'll get your thoughts on sort of this sort of broader science communication uh topic because yeah you just said yeah. i'm an expert but hey <laughs> I'm, I'm figuring this more, out as i go way more an expert than i am <laughs> <laughs> but i think it's important to get you know, people like you who are working working scientists perspective on this because like, where do you see the, like, how do you, in, of course, we're all, we're just throwing ideas out here. I don't think either of us really know yeah. if we did, we'd, we'd, we'd be doing it. But like, where is the breakdown in knowledge? Is it that people don't understand clinical trials? Obviously, there's the psychology aspect that we, we touched on where, you know, I took this tablet and I feel better. Now there's fear, there's all this. It's like, you, where, do, where do you think you even start? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to go down a list and we could talk for a long time on what the problems are, right? Uh, and, and how it doesn't work. How it works is, is much more challenging, how to get it to work. I th- I, personally, I think it really comes back down to scientific education. 
from a very young age, right? I think that's that's the problem because if people haven't had a science education and know how science works, then it's very difficult later in life to to it sounds patronizing, but to explain it all, right? Because it's like because it's so far outside of their kind of world. Mm-hmm. You know, many people have got this vision of of science. It's not how science is, and so unless you more people, it's, it's that thing of science should be compulsory from a young age at school for society's benefit. And, and and not science just about, in the way it's taught in schools, I think about this is how, uh, you know, acid-base balance works, mm-hmm. right? It's about, about how scientific... Because actually, if you think about it, nobody in schools, I wasn't, is taught how science works. Mm-hmm. What is the scientific discovery process? What is peer review? Mm-hmm. How does that work? Well, even testing a hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. So all those things in science, and I, I could be way out of date, but I suspect I'm not, <laughs> that, that in schools, that isn't really, maybe it's improving, I don't know, but but it never certainly was a big feature of it. And so people think of science as just a series of facts mm-hmm. to be learned and concepts to be understood, but they have no clue about the human story about how knowledge is generated and i think if people understood that better or more people understood that better i think it would be easy to have these conversations because everything we've discussed uh, you know it's the classic stuff people go on social media or websites or whatever and they just take the information that seems to make sense to them Mm -hmm. or what they uh, want to hear without yeah yeah exactly without really questioning where it came from and then the flip side of that is if somebody is, shall we say, I'm trying to get a word, but if somebody's doing it for nefarious reasons, it's easy to discredit science as well. On the other side of the coin is, is you, you know, you can just make some random criticism of a study, which has no weight, and people then don't know what to believe, mm-hmm. right? So, the, so, for example, the Brazilian study we just talked about, if you've got a certain kind of person who's into conspiracy theories on the podcast with us, I am sure, and some of them are quite articulate, mm-hmm. I am sure they'd make a pretty strong case as to why that study is wrong. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what a double-blind clinical trial is and why it works and, and what the motivations for the scientists doing it and the, and the, and the, reg, you know, the, the um, peer review process and how that communicates inside. If you don't understand all that, why should you believe what I'm saying versus the other person on the podcast who's saying the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I think it's about understanding the process of science that, that we need more people to, to have, if you like. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah. But like that yeah, that's, all like... I, that's, my, that's all I've got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that it's like critical thinking, right? Like, so it's like there's the scientific yeah, method yeah. and critical thinking and this kind of thing. And I wonder if that doesn't then buffer people against the mistrust, right? Because that's the other thing that I think is getting exploited at the moment by these people that, you know, they're doing it for money, obviously. Yeah. Or, you know, at the end of the day, when you follow these anti-vax or whatever rabbit holes, it's money. So it's like snake oil salesmen, or it's deeply religious yeah. people. Like those are the two, <laughs> those yeah. are the two, yeah. right? Yeah. And they kind yeah. of go hand in hand. But yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if like, if you had that, that education you're talking about, or that knowledge, that understanding of like, you can kind of sift through the sort of the noise a little bit better. It doesn't buffer, you know, against some of the mistrust, right? Because that's what a lot of people are selling is mistrust trust in the institutions, mistrust in pharmaceutical companies, this, that, the other. And everyone's always saying, do your research, do your research. But if you don't know what you're researching and you can't know everything, you can't be an expert in all of these things. At some point, you kind of 
have to just like, well, like I'm going to trust my doctor. I'm going to yeah, trust, yeah. you know, the research institutions or something like that. And if you knew the way that they're working, you might have a bit exactly, more trust yeah. in like, well, okay, they've done these trials. Yeah. This, this is the standard. This is the framework. At the end of the day, you could always say, well, I don't believe that they actually did the trial, but then you're, then you're way yeah. far out there. But I think I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I tend to agree with you. And, you know, when I talk to my brother, who's a school teacher, kind of says the same thing. So maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think it's it is. It's a, you make a good point about the trust because it's exactly that. That's where the lack of trust comes from. Who do you trust, right? And and I think if you don't, if you understood how science works in terms of professional science and all that stuff. I think it's easy to trust certain sources than, than others, right? And, uh, you know, for example, you, you hear conspiracy theories about all that scientist is being paid to do that, right? I even saw, this is a of tangent, even saw um, some person like this being interviewed, and it was a politician, a Republican politician, I can't remember who she was, but she was basically saying, talking about evolution, it was, you know, she's an anti-evolution person. And she was basically saying, well, of course, you do know that Darwin was paid to produce this theory. Oh, I saw this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, and it's like, you know, if for anybody who understands how science works, you know, that is not true. But if you don't understand it, then you might go, oh, well, I didn't know that. That's interesting. That you know, so yeah, it sounds nefarious. It's, it's that's just an example. So you don't know who to trust, and I think, you know, I think as you know, and as a scientist myself in my own field, you can't read absolutely everything that's published on everything and understand it all at every level, right? But it, there's a system in place where you 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 know, part of the skill of it is knowing what to trust and and why, mm -hmm. right? And, and that's the piece that, as a scientist, you kind of spend your life doing it. And so it it's difficult then if people don't have that background, you know, to, to, to know where to start with the conversation, right? Because you, you assume a lot of stuff and, and then people, you know, it's easily derailed if people don't have that trust in, in certain systems. Uh, I mean, the other thing I think which doesn't help is is the way the media approach it um, in a number of ways, right? I mean, on the one hand, you've got the sensationalist thing. It's always going in the headline, and so that doesn't help. So somehow that's got to stop. But how, I don't know. And then the other thing is this this argument of false balance as well, which, you know, is, is this thing where... And the BBC, actually, although they're very good in many ways, and very good compared to many, have gone down this track of, of, of always wanting to provide balance. Right. So if there's an argument, we must get a spokesperson on either side of this debate. No right? matter how ridiculous the other side is. Yes, right? yeah. So it's like, you know, if, if, if you were talking to somebody about satellite navigation, it's almost like saying, well, we need a flat earther on here to point out <laughs> not everybody believes the earth is round and these satellites might be all nonsense, right? And we're going to give them each 10 minutes, yeah. right? So you wouldn't do it. But uh, in, in medical matters, quite often there is. And the, the anti-vaccine lobby, you quite often they're given way too much airtime. Uh, and it's this false balance because you only should be providing balance where there is something to debate, right? And so that's yeah. another side of it, which, which you know, and, and again, how that, what the mechanisms are for, for trying to rectify that is, you know, beyond my uh, understanding of how media works. But yeah. Yeah, it, it yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answers are. Media training, uh, critical thinking skills, all of these things. But I think I don't know. 
I, I do hear more about this, you know, becoming part of curriculum or people are at least talking about it becoming yeah. part of curriculum because we haven't even touched on the social media angle uh, of, of all this, which takes all of these problems that we're talking about and then just, you know, amplifies them to the max. So the people growing up today are, are how are they ever going to know <laughs> what's true and what's yeah. not in the next 20 years? You know, it's uh, yeah. it's a weird, weird thought. It is. It is. And I think the other thing, I mean, the final thing on, on you know, thinking about problems is, is these problems that scientists have, I think, and, and this podcast might be an example of it, we tend to go into a lot of detail, right? So, <laughs> so if you let somebody like me talk, you actually start going, it's just because, you know, it's, uh, and I think that turns people off as well. So, so if, if you do overdo it, and I think also we've got to learn to be more disciplined about that. Mm -hmm. But the problem, the challenge is, of course, science is messy, it's complex, and so, and it's not always clear cut. And as a scientist, you tend to go into that. And we're comfortable with dealing with uncertainty in our profession, if you want to put it that way. Whereas people on the other side of the fence quite often massively oversimplify, give clear messages, which are easy to understand. And so when these debates happen, sometimes you've got somebody on the one side, the scientist, who just sounds like, it's confusing, it's difficult, they don't really know. Mm -hmm. We've just said they don't really know. And then somebody on the other side saying, no, it's very straightforward, this is the answer. Mm -hmm. And the, and that's another challenge. And as a scientist, I kind of don't know how to handle that, to be honest with you, because if you start oversimplifying your own message, then that's not right either. Right. right. So so it's a really difficult thing to, 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 to tackle. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of people over the years, I mean, the evolution debate and the religion debate is an interesting example of it because there are people on the evolution side who will refuse to publicly debate with um, the anti-evolutionists, partly for those reasons, because it's very easy to give the negative, distorted, simple message. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it gets, the debate gets derailed because people on the other side are trying to explain this complexity and subtlety. But I think this is where it's hard, um, right? what you were saying, like the, the education about how science works, because this was one of the, the things that really always, you know, drew me to science and what I really enjoyed about, you know, working in the lab and stuff and just talking with everyone else is, is how, like you said, people are comfortable with uncertainty. There's always something you don't know, you know, there's always the next question and you're really at the, you know, I've said this a million times on this podcast, people who listen regularly, and I'm sure there's five of them, uh, probably get upset with me because I say it again, but it's like you're on the tip of the spear of the knowledge, you know, like of, of knowledge creation. And that's that's the the amazing and the exciting thing. And I think if people understood more that this is what science is uh, and this is like, yeah. you know, what scientists are, you know, enjoy about it and they'll be very open to tell you you what you know and what you don't know i think during the during the, the discussion just now i think you've said it several times well you know we don't really know how ivermectin's doing this or how it's doing that and it's like and but that's a like a good thing <laughs> but like you said it's a, um, taken in another format in another field it becomes a very bad thing i mean a really good example of that actually and we probably should finish because <laughs> nobody will listen this long but i think so um but, but the you know one of the a really good example of that was the COVID situation and, and the advice the CDC and people at Anthony Fauci had given originally. So obviously when COVID started, you know, by definition it's a new virus. We had limited understanding of it. And so if you remember back to the early messages, it was a lot of the 
control of transmission was around mm-hmm. washing hands, decontaminating. And actually, they openly said early on they didn't think the masks were right. that important, right? And that was based on limited data, which was pointed out at the time. But then as, as, as the studies were done and the evidence got, it becomes the biggest single way to control other than vaccination mm-hmm. is by double masking. Right, and then that became the message. But a lot of those conspiracy people, anti-mask people, all that stuff, use this against the scientists, saying, "Well, yeah. you're just flip-flopping." You see it on, you know, the, the, the Fox News Jersey, flip-flopping all the time. Says one thing, one thing, next thing. But the reason it's not flip-flopping, it's changing your opinion based on evidence right. as you acquire it, and that's a good thing. It's a good thing to change your mind. It's a bad thing. Not to change your mind. But then that that's that's where it's an example of this complexity versus simplicity. If somebody's just shouting the same thing over and over again, it's it sounds like they're pretty convinced, right? And 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 they're convincing to some people. Mm-hmm. But it's not good. And 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 so and, and that debate still happens. It keeps getting brought up. We've changed your mind so many times. Right. Why should we listen to you? We change it, whatever mind changing is going on is based on updating our evidence and now iteratively improving the, 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 the advice. So, but it's hard to get that across sometimes, mm-hmm. right? But do you think that maybe that that was, maybe that's the thing that's lacking is, is, is being upfront about that, what we know and what we yeah, don't know. Yeah. Cause I think yeah, my, well. uh, and again, people that have listened to this podcast heard me say a version of this many times, but I kind of feel like, and it, I understand it, from the public health officials and the politicians and people that there's this new emerging crisis. There's all, you know, everyone's scared and we want to keep people safe and stuff like that. But to go with these sort of absolute statements, like got to do this, got to do that, you know, rather than be like, look at everyone, this is, we don't know. (laughs) Just, you got to trust me. We don't know. It's going to change. Being inside is, is worse than being outside. So, you know, wear a mask inside, but you don't necessarily have to do it outside. But then it became this, like, you got to wear a mask. And you saw people wearing masks outside or, you know, they're closing playgrounds and stuff. And it's like, at that point, we kind of know that that's not really the danger, but, you know, but there was, so I think there was yeah. a reluctance to deal, to acknowledge the nuance and acknowledge the gray area and acknowledge what they don't know for fear of whatever bad thing's going to happen. It's better if we just do it this way, talk down and, and just tell people this is it. And I don't think that was necessarily the motivation, no, I, but maybe that's just the way it, it unfolded. But I wonder, you know, if, if, if that's kind of, and it, I, maybe you buffer that with education earlier on, right? Like if we have maybe yeah, in yeah. 20 years, if something like this happens again, we'll all have this memory and be like, well, let's, let's figure it out first. It's going to change like it did last time. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree entirely with you. I think that is the right approach. And you, you're right. It happens with a lot of public health advice um, that, you know, the, the thinking has been you need to keep it simple to keep the measures simple, which, you know, there is some truth in that, obviously. But but you've got to be careful you don't overdo mm-hmm. it because of exactly what you said. You oversimplify and then you back yourself into a corner when you have to kind of, you know, change change something and, and the rest of it. Um, so I think absolutely, I think uncertainty and getting that across and being honest about it is way better. That having been said, you've got to be aware that it will be used against you right. because of the examples I've given, you know, some people will um, will then use the argument that well, you don't know what you're talking about because you, you know, don't sound like you know, right? So I think, but but again, it's not going to happen overnight. But I think if the culture could evolve to that, mm-hmm. and, and as you say, including earlier education, I think that's 
that's probably the biggest thing that would would change yeah. it. But it's not going to happen in a year no. or two, right? It's a generation probably. And there's a lot of you know confound, like you said, social media. There's all these confounding issues. I personally think that we should people should be less worried about what the what the opponents. No, absolutely, just yeah. Be yeah. honest, be yeah. genuine, because that's what people respond yeah. to, right? Yeah. So if you're yeah, a good speaker, no, so, you're yeah. a good communicator, you know, embrace the unknown. Because if you look at like a lot of the popular science communication stuff, it, it I mean, a lot of it's space because people are just really into space. But, you know, Carl Sagan's yeah. and the Brian Greens and like all these guys, right? It's always about the unknown. It's always about the mystery. It's always about yeah. the, you know, so people yeah. like it. You know, pe people do like it. Maybe not yeah. so much when it's about their health. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> it's a mystery. I don't know yeah. why you're dying. It's a mystery. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, no, it's a good point. Absolutely. And I think the thing is, and it's an interesting one. I think it's, it's more to do with education than, for example, intelligence, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because you can have the brightest person in the world. And, and if, if, if you haven't been exposed to that stuff, particularly earlier in life, it's not about a lack of intelligence. It's just about a lack of way of thinking. Mm -hmm. A training. Which has come about over a lifetime. Yeah, training. So I think, you know, I think, it, and vice versa, right? I mean, I, I don't think, in a way, this isn't rocket science, right? I mean, this this is the, the, the baffling thing about, you know, if you think about the logic of a double-blind clinical trial, going back to that, it's not rocket science that you look at a lot of people you don't have any biases and you look at the data and that's going to tell you better than asking the guy down the street whether he feels better yeah. or not, right? It's that, that should not be, you shouldn't need to be a brilliant mind to It's not controversial. You don't yeah. need to be, right? No, but, but, and there, but there are many intelligent people who don't mm -hmm. get that. So, so it's nothing to do with intelligence. It's to do with education and, and, and where you've come from and, you know, what you're exposed mm -hmm. to, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, John, this has been great. Uh, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I know my five listeners will enjoy it as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I just, about where you should be get, you should work hard on interrupting me when I'm beginning to prattle on, because I'm aware sometimes I, uh, yeah, I go on a bit too long on some of the. Yeah, no, I think but, it's great. Yeah. I think you're a good story storyteller. I think, uh, I think you, you got a knack for some of this stuff. So, you know, if you ever want to start your own podcast, I'll help you out with it. But for now. You're welcome to join me anytime on this. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, you're, you're a good host. So I'm, <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> um, thanks for inviting me. And there we have it. The true history of Ivermectin. Thank you so much again to my guest, John Gilliard, for joining the show. And for you, for sticking around to the end. And for rating and subscribing the podcast like I know you will do. Please, please, please rate, subscribe, follow wherever you get your podcasts. Head over to the website, tobradforyou.wordpress.com. Find out all of the different ways you can get in touch with the show. We want to hear from you. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, at tobradforyou. And that's it. Enjoy. Enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, thank you so, so much for listening, uh, and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.